Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Demcast Network. I'm Kimberly Johnson in D.C. Happy New Year. We're on the brink of war. It's only the eighth, people. And oh, by the way, that's Elvis's birthday for anyone who cares. But shit's already fucked up. Uh, I was supposed to talk to the CEO of MeWe today, which is the Facebook alternative, but he had to postpone. So today my guest is Jared Yates Sexton. He's a writer and political analyst whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Republic, Politico, the Daily Beast, and Salon. He's the author of The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, A Story of American Rage. And he also um, wrote, uh, that book, by the way, is about the 2016 presidential election. And his latest book, The Man They Wanted Me to Be, Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Our Own Making, is something that we're going to talk about toxic masculinity. And I'm going to read his book because I'm so curious. Now, uh, usually I interview um, people and I record the intro before Today I'm recording it after, and I'm telling you right now, you're going to want to stick around and listen to the toxic masculinity segment because uh, we first, you know, we cover politics, but then we go into the toxic stuff. So I also just wanted to add that he currently serves as an associate professor professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern University. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about politics. We're going to talk about Trump's crazy presser and the wag the dog situation. We're going to talk about Putin. And then we're going to go into toxic masculinity. And that is fascinating because he's so open and honest and sincere. And as someone who has experienced uh, like eating disorders and body image issues, uh, Jared talks about that and he's very open and, you know, he pulls that into the whole toxic masculinity conversation. Again, you're not going to want to miss it. It's such a great, it's such a great chat. Um, So a couple things before we get into it. It is the new year and I had a good break. I still followed the news, so I was a little stressed. I mean, before we broke, I was filled with anxiety. I think the year had just like, as it was coming to a close, as we were approaching 2020, I just think it was all getting to me and I was feeling very anxious. So I did take some time in this break for myself even though I paid attention to what was going on. And I've decided to change up a couple of things personally. And I, I, uh, one of the things I'm doing is daily meditations. And I think that's a good way to utilize self-care. Everybody talks about self-care these days. And just relaxing myself in the middle of the day, in the middle of all the craziness, and you know, imagining myself in the woods walking by a stream and looking at flowers or something it really helps because it, it pulls your energy into a calm mood. And I think it kind of sets a tone. I go right back into the crazy, but at least I've had that a uh, few minutes to, to do. And I'm also making the effort to be, and I can't guarantee this is always going to come through on the podcast because even today I was a little bit of gloom of doom, but, um, or, or crack of doom, I should say, as my mother calls me. But, um, you know, I'm making an effort to be more positive, at least more positive with myself, because I have a tendency to anybody who's heard me talk about my body image or write about it. Anybody who's listened or pays attention knows that I have a tendency to indulge in that negative conversation with myself. So I'm making an effort, not just about my body, just about things in general. I'm trying to be more positive in, the, in, in what I'm saying to myself. And once again, this not only has to do with 2020, it obviously, I, I just want to be a better person. I want to be a, a positive 
positive person and I, I, I want to be the best I can be. But I also know that we're, we're up for this brutal roller coaster ride of a year and we have absolutely no idea how it's going to play out and we have absolutely no idea who's going to win in November. So it's, it's, it's vital for me to find ways to take care of myself and, and, and focus on positive things. Because if I don't, I'm, I'm literally afraid that I'm going to spiral into this like negative place that I don't know that I would be able to get out of. So a little preventative with meditation. I recommend it to everybody. In fact, you can find guided meditations on YouTube and they're just simple and fun. I mean, literally it's somebody who talks in a soothing voice and they guide you through a beautiful forest and you can smell a flower and look at the, you know, look at the stream and hug the tree. And, and it may sound silly, but you know, you do it for about 15 minutes a day and it really does bring some peace, much needed peace in a crazy tumultuous world. Um, now I also just wanted to bring up the fact that as I have been saying, eventually I want to get to two shows per week as an absolute. Right now we're still in the mode of some some weeks we're going to do one show, some we'll do two. And once we get into that mode where it's every two shows every week, I think what I'm going to do and I'm not sure yet, but I think what I'm going to do is do a staple of of Wednesday, like always. And then I'm going to have a floater day. So that means that it might come on a Monday or it might come on a Tuesday or Thursday because the people that I'm talking to are actors and, uh, you know, political pundits who are often on television and they get called in or I talk to lawyers and I talk to moms and there's, you know, just like anybody, their schedules are very erratic and different. And I want to be able to be um, available to everybody. And I don't want to limit myself. If, if somebody can't do a Monday or a Wednesday, then I wouldn't be able to interview them. So I am going to, and I like to post the same day. I don't like to hold them. I just don't because usually the stuff that we talk about is very timely. So I think I might keep that floater day open. We'll see as we move forward. The way that I'm going to get to um, uh, two days a week is is by getting more patrons. And I will get to that in a minute. But first, I just want to say next week's schedule on Wednesday. So far, we're going to have one show next week, um, although that might change. Uh, Wednesday is dedicated for Steve Schmidt. And I've been talking about the fact that he's, you know, supposed to be on. I'm going to confirm with him a little later this week. Hopefully he'll be here next Wednesday and we'll have an interesting conversation. It's probably going to scare me, but uh, (laughs) it'll for sure be interesting. Uh, Let's see. Let's see. Oh, so, okay. Because I want to build my patronage, patronage for having two shows, it just means that I, I need more support. I need more support in either in, in order to get to an absolute of two shows per week. So Start Me Up is a listener-supported show. It is supported by patrons. I don't utilize corporate funding right now, and I also don't use advertisers. So the show survives on listeners becoming patrons. Maybe you can just visit patreon.com slash startmeup and sign up for any dollar amount. Like when you sign up for a dollar, you'll that's the the, uh, amount that you'll get for patrons only stuff and every podcast will be delivered to your email box. If you sign up for two or $3, it's like you're taking me to the movies or something like that for the work that I do. And if you sign up for $5 a month, you get access to and another thing, which is a segment that's uh, for patrons only after the free show. It's usually twice a month and it's, it's always with a co-host, not somebody that I'm interviewing. 
I'm also considering doing something else. And I'm not, you know, I, I don't have necessarily, I'm going to explain it. I don't necessarily have a theme, like I'm going to always be talking about X, maybe patriarchy, but I have an idea for at least one solo show, which I might be able, now if I'm going to have a, a, like an ongoing I don't know even what you would call it, just solo shows where I'm going to be talking about various subjects. And again, maybe the theme is patriarchy. Maybe the theme is feminism. Maybe the theme is just the fact that I want to vent about something or whatever. But I'm thinking maybe I can like do half the show for um, free and then half the show for patrons only. Now, I don't know exactly how that would go. And I certainly wouldn't, it wouldn't be more than $5 per month. That way, everybody who's, uh, um, you know, doing and another thing would be able to listen to it. One of the shows that I was considering doing is just a solo thing where I'm talking about relationships that I've had with men in the past and how they've affected me. Um, it's not going to be a male bashing show or anything like that, but I certainly focus on patriarchy, my insecurities, bad decisions that I made, um, when I was diminished or, you know, made to feel diminished or made to feel insecure, instead of standing up for myself, I, I allowed somebody to make me feel bad. And then, you know, I mean, I, I can obviously get into more of this later, but it's not about them making me feel a certain way. It's either patriarchy or me allowing that person to cause a certain feeling. And so I kind of want to discuss that. And I would have, anybody who I talk about in my past is going to be anonymous and I'm going to keep out certain details about the life because they did not sign up um, to have their lives all over my podcast. <laughs> so I would only focus on my point of view. Uh, so I'd like to know your opinion on that. Is that something you would like to hear? If so, go ahead and uh, you know write it in the comments. You know I love comments. And last you can find Start Me Up on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. It would be really awesome if you could become a subscriber on iTunes and give the show a positive review as well as a good rating. I'm really working on building up that iTunes, so any support would help. Of course, of course, um, I appreciate all the support and all the patrons. You make the show possible. I love doing it. I appreciate you. Thank you. And all right, here we go. My conversation with Jared Yates Sexton. Welcome, Jared. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, it's a it's a crazy day. And, you know, I know that you were able to watch the crazy president give his speech and I was not. So why don't you fill us in? <laughs> yeah. OK, so I'm really glad that we're taping this when we are, because um, the, the president just left the podium. I, I, I don't know, five, six minutes ago. Mm -hmm. And um you, you know, it, it was one of those situations where uh, it, it should have been the easiest speech anyone's ever given um, with the, the attacks last night, which were completely telegraphed by Iran. They gave prior warning. They, it was obviously a shot across the bow. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a place for Iran to basically gift Trump a get-out-of-jail-free card, mm -hmm. uh, this ability to de-escalate this entire crisis. And Trump gave a rambling, incoherent speech. Um, I, I, I felt like I was going to black out for a minute. He actually uh, mentioned uh, the Obama administration yeah. giving Iran money and insinuated that weapons bought with that money have been used to kill and maim Americans, which, if you break that down, is treason. Um, <laughs> so he accused Barack Hussein Obama of treason and then went on to 
um, not take the opportunity to de-escalate. He mentioned the possibility of the United States having more of a presence in the Middle East, which is something that um, Iran has basically demanded uh, the opposite of, that we, we leave things alone. And then mentioned the possibility of bringing NATO into the conflict, which would expand the conflict and make it a worldwide conflict. And then it appeared that he revealed uh, top secret weapons that we have been working on that appear to be classified. Um, he oh, mispronounced wow. things left and right. He yeah. had trouble breathing. It was um, it was actually really shocking how bad it was. And I I feel crazy myself because it ended and. Like everything else with Trump, the the way they, the media and pundits grade him on a curve, uh, they talked about how he was subdued. And I have to tell you, that was one of the most unhinged things that I've seen in American politics ever. Wow. And that seems like we say it every day about him. <laughs> you know, it's like he's always freaking unhinged. And now this, I mean, it... <sighs> I, I don't know. I don't. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, what do, what did you gauge from this as far as where we might be headed? I, you know, I, I really don't know. I, I've had a few minutes to process this. Um, it obviously was not the message that Iran was hoping for. Mm-hmm. Um, this was obviously uh, um, an opportunity to deescalate. And that's not at all what happened here. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If this was a some sort of grandstanding to you know declare victory and 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 basically you know take a victory lap, or if this was a promise of of further escalation and intentions, mm-hmm. um, it's not clear because I, I think everybody who's been watching this knows this administration has no idea what it's doing. Yeah. And it's it's flying by the seat of its pants. There is no philosophy. There is no plan. There is no understanding. And to watch something like this, I mean, you know, for an American to sit here and watch it is one thing and have no idea what the hell is going on. But you have to imagine not only are Iranians watching this and having no idea what's going on, but other groups within the Middle East, proxy groups, uh, other groups that now have a bone with America or have had a bone and, and see this as some sort of escalation, um, they're watching this. And there's a world that's puzzling over this. Our, our allies are yeah. probably puzzling over right. this. And, and that's the, the, the worst part about it is not only is this like a dangerous, unpredictable person, but it's a dangerous, unpredictable person who doesn't even understand that they're unpredictable and dangerous. And, yeah. and it is just, um, it's really staggering. Well, I, I'm no uh, expert on the Middle East. And that's, I don't, I usually kind of shy away from this kind of talk. And now we have to talk about it because we're, you know, shooting missiles and assassinating people over there. So um, I, though, want to ask you about something because it's, it's, concerning me and I don't know what to make of it but the Sunday before the airstrike before we assassinated the Iranian general Putin um, spoke with Trump and we found that out because uh, the Kremlin announced it not the White House usually that's how it goes and I do know now that you know listening to Richard Engel last night on MSNBC he said that Putin was going to be talking to Erdogan today in Turkey and that he sees himself as like a peacemaker right so he wants to go over there and he wants to look like the guy who's who's bringing peace and this and that and so I'm curious about it because uh, Iran is friendly with Russia. They are considered allies. 
And Trump had a conversation with Putin right before this happened. And I'm wondering, like, do you think that because I think that there could be a connection, although I don't know what that connection would be. I mean, obviously, um, you know, when we listen to the reports on the news, they're saying that and we know this, that uh, Iran has no match, military match compared to the United States. So obviously, as a friend of Iran, Putin, Russia, has nuclear weapons, and they could help Iran, which I don't think is going to happen. I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but I'm just saying that there are so many questions and so many variables. Do you think that Putin has anything to do, or at least I should say this, do you think Putin is either having a direct um, effect on what's happening, or do you think that maybe he is utilizing this to his benefit in some just dastardly horrible way <laughs> well I'm, I'm really glad that you brought up putin because I, I i think this is one of those um one of those things that is looming over not just this situation but every situation in the world and that's by design yeah. um you know, you know uh, uh, pundits have this really um terrible record of of talking about trump's strategic genius you know mm-hmm. he may seem like a madman but there's a lot working underneath here and he's playing three-dimensional chess well vladimir putin is playing six and seven yes. dimensional yes. chess um you know I, I was doing some research um for my own work and when you look at how vladimir putin approaches um geopolitics um th- there there's always you know, plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and H, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. and there's all of these different situations that can always be approached or always be used. Um, he's in the thick of everything in the world yeah. and, and usually is playing both sides. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and one of the things that, that happens when Putin gets involved is no matter what happens, he wins. You know, it's the yeah. equivalent of you know, betting on the Super Bowl and betting on both teams. Mm-hmm. And and that that that's definitely what is happening in this situation. Um, he is friendly with every belligerent in every major world crisis that we have going, right? Um, there, there are direct lines that always go back. And the plan has always been to either have better relations with America or to decrease America's um, sway and hegemony over the world. Um, there is a... Um, this big idea within Russia, um, Eurasianism, which is the idea that that Russia should take over as the main superpower in the world. There's a whole mythology and ideology and philosophy behind it. But that's always what's at the heart of of Putin's movements. Mm -hmm. With this, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of this stuff is happening on the 20th anniversary of Vladimir Putin taking power in Mm -hmm. Russia. Um, These people constantly have their fingers in every situation and, and, and definitely with Trump. I mean, he, he, you know, we can talk one thing or another about Trump and Russia collusion. Like, and, I'm, and let's even give him the benefit of the doubt and say that there, you know, there isn't a conspiracy between him and Russia, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, like, let's even pretend like that's not a thing, which I actually believe is a thing. But let's pretend like it's not. Um, the, it, Trump is basically the underling of Putin at this point. He yeah. looks to him for ideas right. and for directions. And, and and you know, it, it basically Trump has taken a subservient role as a world leader, and he, he takes his directions from Putin. Um, 
I have no doubt that Putin weighed in on this. I have no doubt that every situation that we see play out one way or another, Putin has tried to have sway over it. It just so happens that we have a president right now that he has particular sway over. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I, I have no doubt that he's looming over this entire process. And, and that actually makes it harder to talk about because we're so used to talking about um, dichotomous situations, mm -hmm. right? We're, we're so used to talking about um, you, you know, the United States versus the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. the United States versus Iraq, this very, very simplified us versus them, one versus two. That's not what's happening here. This, this current situation, and you look all over the world, there's so many touch points, right? There's Turkey, there's mm -hmm. Syria, there's, there's now there's Iran. And we have all of these different situations where all of these different powers can play different roles against each other and they're constantly moving and shifting. And it's like a, it's like a knot that keeps getting naughtier and naughtier and naughtier. And, and eventually it's, it's the tensions going to overflow. Yeah. That's how, that's how this thing is designed to work. And, and unfortunately um, a lot of it seems to be at the direction of people like Putin and the, and the people who serve him. <sighs> well, you know, I mean, my, my listeners know this, and I'll just briefly tell you, I don't know if you saw my pinned tweet, but actually I was um, living in Soviet Russia the year you were born. <laughs> I was 12 years old. My dad was a uh, cameraman for ABC News, and that's why we lived over there. So I had the experience of living in a Soviet country, and I know that Vladimir Putin, you know, is a former Soviet KGB. So I kind of feel like I have a insight more than an expert opinion, but like an insight into his darkness because the police state was something that, I mean, I don't think we're ever going to have a police state like Soviet Russia in America, but I understand that, you know, I understand what his goals and intentions are. I think to just basically destroy, dismantle democracy, pick through the country, become his own superpower. And everybody thinks he's so great. And so I, I, I would actually argue that the police state that is in place in Russia right now is not only as dangerous as the Soviet police state, but it's actually in some ways more so because it's hidden. Right. Um, that and and sense, I actually yeah. think that's one of the more sinister parts of Putinism is um, him and uh, Vladislav Surkov have created this situation where you know, it appears, quote unquote, to be democracy, even though everyone understands it's not democracy and hidden behind the veil of democracy is that police state. So I actually think you're right. We're not going to see the overtness of mm -hmm. it, but a lot of it comes from this, the hidden nature of it. Yeah. And, and, and that's certainly I, I think it's more sinister personally. Yeah, well, that definitely makes sense. And it's it's you know, I think that not not enough Americans understand uh, the threat of Vladimir Putin. And I think we put so much emphasis on Donald Trump. And I do want to talk to you about that tweet thread you were uh, you had put out there about Trump's ability to or like, you know, that he's not a strategic genius. But um, I think that it's important to I mean, we should always be paying attention to the um, to the president, we should always be paying attention to what he says, what he does. But I think that we need to put more emphasis on like you were just saying that, you know, Putin is orchestrating all of this. And I wish that we would just uh, acknowledge that more because I, I, I don't know what to make of all of this of what's going on now. Like, I don't know as I don't know. Anybody knows you, you there. Even Trump doesn't know. There's no plan. We have no plan. So what is the, the, what is the main goal here? And then that brings me to your, your, um, 
your tweet thread. You said that people give him credit he doesn't deserve. Um, he's not a secret strategic genius. He's a failure who's continued to fail upward because of inherent privileged white supremacy. He is as incapable of running the country as he is rolling out Trump vodka. So let's talk a little bit about that and and the fact that uh, too many pundits um, give him more credit than he deserves. Yeah, so this is this is something that I sort of uh, came to realize with um, a feeling of abject horror. Uh, you know, I, I, as I was starting to try and unwind why we got in this situation in the first place, and I had, I had always had this feeling that uh, Trump was more of a symptom of a disease as opposed to the disease. Right. Right. Like you, you don't, you don't get Donald Trump as president of the United States of Mm -hmm. America without something going horribly wrong and going horribly wrong over a period of time. Mm -hmm. So a lot of, of, of this thing, and it's happening right now. Like I, I just looked over and saw on the TV, you know, it's like, these people uh, on like an eight person panel are talking, you know, undoubtedly three or four of them are like, well, I think Trump made a strategic decision here, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that's not at all what's happening. No, we have we have a real problem with our media in this country. Um, it's it's a bunch of people who they, they treat politics like sports. Right. Because they're they're insiders. They are people who know how this stuff works. They're having drinks with these people. They're having dinner with these people. They're at book release parties with these people. And so they're part of a giant system and the system is decayed and it's decaying from the inside out and the decay is starting to show. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is when somebody like Trump comes along, who is not just incompetent, but is flagrantly incompetent and unworthy of the position that reflects on the institution Mm -hmm. that shows that there's something wrong with the institution. Well, these people can't admit that there's something wrong with the institution because that's the institution that has given them power. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden you have a group of people who are paid to talk about politics. They're tasked to keep abreast of politics and they're actually letting their own identities get in the way of talking about what's actually happening. Um, if there was truth in media, the speech that I just watched, it would be around the clock coverage talking about the fact that we have an unwell president mm-hmm. who ra- is ratcheting up a completely unnecessary conflict and, and is endangering all of us. It, it's a red alarm fire. But it's not to these people. It's a strategic move. Right. Obviously, there's some sort of logic behind it that dictates him behaving in this way. Mm-hmm. And so for their own benefit and the benefit of their privilege, they they look for something behind the scenes. Right. This is like the emperor's new clothes. Yeah. They, they're they looking for something that isn't there. And and I and I know it's really horrible to hear this, but there's a madman at the wheel. Like yeah. we're we're in a flaming car that is not being driven by a competent driver. And the sooner that we realize that, the sooner we'll try and fix it or heal from it. But the more that we stand in denial and we let these people who have financial and mm-hmm. and political reason to tell us otherwise, it's only going to get worse. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I, I know that when I when I'm watching or even like, say, scrolling down Twitter, I see... I'm going to focus here a little bit on never Trumpers because I'm seeing like, for instance, Tom Nichols is saying that if Obama did this, Democrats would be cheering. And, you know, I, I commented, which he didn't reply, but I said, well, if Obama did this after he had been impeached for crimes, for obstruction of Congress and for, uh, 
I can't remember the other thing that he was obstructed Abuse for. Abuse of power. Abuse of power, thank you. Um, then no, I would not be cheering. Uh, that's kind of the difference between, I think, Democrats and, and Republicans sometimes. But uh, no, I would not be cheering. And, and I'm seeing this argument from so many people out there that if, you know, okay, well, if a Democratic president had done it, then everybody would be cheering. Well, under those circum- under the exact same circumstances, no. Uh, I would certainly not be cheering with a criminal president. And I wouldn't be denying the fact that the Democrat who would be, you know, colluding with Russia, calling on Ukraine to get dirt on Biden, that would be, in my opinion, criminal activity that I would not be happy with. And if Obama ever did that, I would have been so upset about it. And so I'm seeing a lot of people saying this, and it's it's kind of worrisome. Now, I mean, when, when you say that to me, my first reaction is I kind of want to shut down because I feel like, well, then where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? I mean, obviously, we can listen to podcasts. We can listen to people like you. But how, how do we get... like? How are we going to fix this or how do we overcome it? Well, you know, I, I'm glad that you brought up the dichotomous idea of Democrat versus Republican, because I think at the heart of this thing, it, it really boils down to that, that dichotomy. It really boils down to, you know, pick one or the other, mm-hmm. because uh, I actually I, you know, I, I, I started researching how we got into the position that we are. And the more that I looked into it, the more that I was like, you know what? You cannot understand where we are without understanding that both parties have failed. Both parties, and in different ways, right? Like what we're seeing with the Republican Party is we're watching a completely corrupted, terminally ill um, fascistic movement is what we're watching. It is a white identity movement to maintain power. Mm-hmm. Um, with the Democratic Party, there have been uh, strategic decisions that were made, particularly post-Reagan, um, to adopt more uh, rightward policies, to work more with corporations, to work mm-hmm. um, you know, more against the interest of people and more towards party politics in order to regain power in a post-Reagan world. Mm-hmm. Well, once you start looking past the dichotomy of blue versus red, you start to see opportunities for change. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, what keeps me sane and gives me hope is the fact that it does not have to work this way. Um, this stalemate that we're in between Democrats and Republicans is is trench warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's all based on this thing um, that that is out there called game theory, which is this idea, um, you know, it, this is started by scientists during uh, the Cold War to try and determine how to win a nuclear war with Russia, right? You're trying to determine how to work against an opponent. And the idea is you're playing a zero-sum game. One person will win, one person will lose, and the way that you win is you play in bad faith. Well, so we have groups of people who, well, you'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do that. And the eventual result of that is not just widespread corruption, but it's also a government that doesn't work for the people. It works for the wealthy because that's who supplies the money and the power. Mm -hmm. And you end up having a president like Donald Trump who uh, divides the world, as everyone knows, between winners and losers. Mm -hmm. Um, The way to gain some hope is the idea of changing the way we play the game or not playing the game. That's the secret of game theory is you you can actually win by not playing. Hmm. And and one of the things that we have to do is we have to start discarding some of these old notions. And what I have noticed 
is uh, particularly recently in the last few months is there are groups of Trump voters and diehard Republicans that when I talk to them about not playing the game, when I and, and I'll open up to them and I'll be like, these are my problems with the Democratic Party. And once they realize that I have problems with the Democratic Party, <laughs> they start admitting their problems with the Republicans. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we're talking as individuals right. as opposed to enemies playing a game. Yeah. And the moment that that happens, the spell of Trump breaks they start you know they start admitting like i don't really like trump and i'm really concerned about trump and i know that he's incompetent and these are people who you know they they go online and their entire identity is wrapped up in trump and Mm -hmm. they engage in these social media battles which is where a lot of this game theory is taking place in the first place Mm -hmm. and when you start breaking out of that dichotomy and you start seeing this as more nuanced than just the left versus right and blue versus red all of a sudden solutions start coming out right um the only way that you get donald trump is by getting a republican party that realizes it can't win in democratic contest Mm -hmm. that's why that's why they are all about um you know disenfranchisement that's why they're all about gerrymandering that's why um they have moved so far right and have so wildly embraced uh white identity politics and fascism is because they realize they can't win an election well if you can't win a battle you have to retreat to a safer trench Right. And when you retreat to a safer trench, you adopt, you know, uh, salted earth or scorched earth policy. So we're engaged in this game that isn't ever going to lead anywhere good or productive for the people. But once we reject that game and we start working more towards a people based um, political solution or political future, I think that's where we win. But we have to recognize that there is a disease and the disease is currently being manifested by Donald Trump. And we have to recognize what that is. And we have to recognize that it started way before him and it'll last way after him unless we diagnose it. Yeah, I think I think it's important to note. I mean, I I am certainly somebody who has not been afraid to criticize Democrats when I felt that it was needed. Um, And I think that we're in this this time where people feel that if there is any kind of criticism of the Democratic Party, that it means that we're not united or that this is not the time to criticize. Um, but I disagree with that. I mean, I, I don't say that it's like both both sides have made mistakes, obviously, but I think we've got one side, as you mentioned, the Republican side is like it's white supremacy, it's fascism, it's like big big BFD stuff. And it's not to say that the the Democrats have not made um, poor decisions, um, especially, you know, concerning how they are uh, putting corporations over people in certain instances. But I think the difference is pretty clear. I mean, obviously, at least with the Democrats, we've got um, an attempt to you know, for for instance, and I don't know if it's happening today, but uh, Virginia turned blue last November and they have decided and said that they're going to vote for the Equal Rights Amendment. And that's excuse me, that's going to be the 38th and final state needed uh, to get the Equal Rights Amendment ratified into codified into the in the Constitution. Now, obviously, the Republicans don't care about things like this and the Democrats do. And that's why I'm a Democrat. But going back to this argument of, um, you know, I I just want to I just want to like kind of make my my listeners aware that it's it's not a an attack on Democrats to criticize Democrats when they do something wrong. I think it's really important that as voters and as citizens that we do that. And I think one of the ways we could, you know, that we even talk about it, maybe without realizing it is getting money out of politics. um, That would be a great way 
to you, both both parties are guilty because this is the system that we've set up. Both car- parties are guilty of following the money and listening to the money instead of listening to the people. I just want to put that out there to be clear because I know tensions are high and people are very defensive, especially Democrats right now, because they feel like, please don't attack us. Please don't attack us. And I don't think what you said was an attack at all. I think it's extremely important that we note what's wrong with our government because it's never going to be perfect, no matter... Uh, what we're able to accomplish, there's always going to be room for improvement. And I, I, I believe that it's important to always push um, for that. Now, what you're saying is it's it's exactly right. But my fear is, and I'm going to come from the crack of doom side here, is that with social media and with, you know, you said there's all this stuff going on with social media where uh, the game is being played. And how I mean, it, not only is the game being played, it is being um, run by trolls, by Russian trolls, by I'm sure there are right wing trolls out there that are pushing disinformation. And then Americans are going online. I mean, everybody's online, but I mean, specifically Americans are going online and they're seeing these messages and they're believing them and they're getting caught up in them. And I mean, just Today, I saw it was a New York Times article that said days after the general killing, Trump campaign promotes it on Facebook. So I guess the Trump campaign has already uh, run eight, like in 800 districts, Facebook ads um, about this killing. And so social media is being used to divide us. And I don't know, like, how do we, how, how, do you have an idea how we can overcome this? Because I don't have the opportunity to talk to too many Trump supporters in person. Well, I'm glad you brought it up and I'm glad that you framed it that way. Um, to, to begin with, there's a huge difference between the parties and the people who support the parties, Mm -hmm. right? Um, there are politicians who make decisions based upon power and, and influence. And then there are the people that they represent. Obviously that relationship is not completely symbiotic because look at the current state of the country, right? We, I mean, Congress has not really passed a lot of bills recently that have helped anybody, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it, you know, it's a log jam of that, but what usually ends up going through are trade deals and things that help corporations and the wealthy, right? That, that, that's how this government functions and how it has functioned for a long, long time. What happens is in the echo chamber of something like a social media, we end up taking the parties and we end up taking our causes and we start cementing our identities with them. And yeah. there becomes this back and forth feedback loop where I identify myself lies this. And as a result, this is my worldview. And I'm going to continually reinforce my worldview with the stories that I put out there. And that makes me vulnerable. And it makes everyone else vulnerable to misinformation that preys upon the predilection for our worldviews. Mm. Um, I personally, I, I come from, I come from rural Indiana. Uh, I come from a family that, um, you know, before this weird movement has happened, they used to be um, what you would classify as FDR Democrats, mm-hmm. who are now, um, you know, very, very loyal Trump voters. Um, they have fallen under sway of not just Trumpism, but also, you know, the, the white supremacists that mm-hmm. that work within those those worlds. Um I I keep in touch with them and people in the Trump community. I like to know what's going on with them. I like to see what misinformation is trafficking. And I have to tell you, last night, it was pretty incredible. Um, the misinformation was there uh, almost immediately from the attacks in Iraq yeah. that 
80 people had been killed, including U.S. soldiers. Um, There was a lot of misinformation that the Democratic Party had organized to uh, lower the flag and half-mast for the slain Iranian general. Mm -hmm. Um, There was uh, a lot of threads, actually, about the uh, the idea that Barack Obama was a secret Iranian. Um, And and, and that's the thing, though, is it's just ludicrous stuff, but it's – it's there for these people, mm-hmm. right? It, it's totally there. And it's like old ideas and, and old uh, suspicions and all these things are coming together and, and continually going in there. The problem is, and it goes back again to the idea of trench warfare and game theory, when we're facing off against each other, we're looking for any ammunition we can find against the other side. Yeah. And that makes us vulnerable to trolls and groups like this. And that's one of the reasons why um, – why, why Putinism is, is so effective is it understands that you can play all different sides against each other by using their preconceived notions and their identities that they need to project. And when you start looking at the Internet and particularly social media, you start to realize that it's a machine that is driven by identity. Mm-hmm. We're all trying to project our personas. We're all trying to project who we are to the world. And, and because of the way the economy works, it's also an economic thing where, you know, we're basically all all our own individual corporation that has to, you know, send out press releases about what we believe and how we feel. And they have figured out a way to hack this. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is an entire movement within Russia underneath Putin, these technologists who work underneath him and propel him. These people study this stuff. They are versed in postmodern theory. They're versed in identity theory. And, And that's why they're able to do the things that they're able to do is because we look at it as if it's real instead of the artificiality that it is. So, again, I think the way that we move beyond it on one hand is we move beyond the idea of, again, dichotomous fights, but the other part about it, and, and this is a much larger conversation, is the way we get past misinformation and disinformation and propaganda is education. Mm-hmm. And we have to get to a point where um, not just critical thinking, but um, research skills and, you know, just sort of like basic, um, you know, questioning is, is taught that that's not what people want out of education now and it has made us very very vulnerable and unfortunately has really hurt our democracy yeah yeah it has and i'm just hoping that uh you know if we are able to overcome this current administration and move into a next that not only would there be regulation on the internet i i'm a strong believer in the fact that we need to continue to fund education put civics back. you know i mean i grew up uh, going to Los Angeles public schools, and I was not taught civics. So I had a little bit of schooling in Maryland, but um, I was quite young. I moved to Southern California in 1977 when I was nine years old. So um, I didn't really have the opportunity to learn civics in third grade. <laughs> um, you know, in California, I didn't get it at all. So I know that we've constantly been um, defunding education, taking funds away, and we need to educate people and I hope that if we can get a new administration that we do that. And I hope that we can figure out ways to regulate the internet and fight the trolls because I mean, if we, if we're unable to do that, I don't, I don't know how much hope that I have because I feel like I don't know. I mean, my boyfriend, Bob Seska is always saying that, like human beings are just not yet ready to deal 
with the internet. It's just too big for us and we're screwing it all up. And I kind of agree because of what's happening. But, you know, there is hope. There's still hope. I, the, the little bit of hope that I see is in 2016, there was all that disinformation coming down. And most of us, with the exception of Hillary Clinton, <laughs> didn't realize it. We didn't realize that what we were looking at w- were blogs written by either Russian trolls or paid, uh, you know, right-wing extremists. There was even, there was even, uh, I think there was a story on like a Dateline or something like that of a guy who was a liberal, but he was writing anti-Hillary things because he got paid really well for it. And then, you know, he was admitting that he did it and saying that he regretted his decision. So, I, I would certainly hope that that we could figure out a way to minimize all of this trolling and this disinformation because if we don't I don't know I don't know how to overcome it. I mean obviously we need the education, but if we if we just as you said, they're, that they're playing into our emotions, they're playing into our preconceived notions so many times and you can see on online that if you just post a headline and even if the headline is whether it's accurate or not, people have knee-jerk reactions to it, and they don't read the article. They go based on the headline, and then it's just an emotional response, which triggers another emotional response, and so on and so on and so on. And then you've just got this endless um, fight about something that nobody's even read. You know? Yeah, and 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 you know y- what you're talking about here is malevolent actors. You're talking about yes. people who are doing this intentionally to either profit from disinformation or are doing it as a means to uh, forward some sort of political aim or social aim. Um, let's even talk about people who aren't doing it from a malevolent standpoint. Um, you know, in this situation, to bring it back around to Iran, we have a real problem in this country because. A lot of our politics is based upon the idea of the myth of American exceptionalism, the idea that America is at all times the great hero of every situation and has been since its founding. Um, And and right now, as people are talking about this situation with Iran, um, it's focusing on what has happened in the past couple of days, right? We, we already have amnesia about how this entire conflict started, which is Donald Trump taking us out of the nuclear deal mm-hmm. and escalating a crisis with Iran. Um, I, I can tell you as somebody who paid close attention to history and, and tried to keep an eye on these types of things, I didn't know until I was recently doing research the entire history of, of our, our, our problems with Iran, going back to the 1950s where we actually um, – handled a coup that overthrew the democratically elected prime minister of Iran. And we did it because he was nationalizing the oil industry in Iran. I, I didn't know about all of the arms dealing we did back and forth. I didn't know how much time and money we spent funding Saddam Hussein in order to kill Iranians. Um, and, and, and again, I didn't understand how that led to the two Persian Gulf Wars. So there's so much under the surface that most of us don't even understand. But once you start seeing things of Objectively, and you take yourself away from, again, us versus them, America versus the world, blue versus red. Once you start moving outside of those perspectives, you start to see the actual objective reality of things. And, and you, you notice that what's happening right now is even being trumpeted by people who aren't doing it malevolently. They're doing it because they're ignorant yeah. and they don't know what is actually taking place here. And the media because of the way that it is fixed and the way that it promotes itself and the way that it sustains itself is not about context. It's not about, and and that's one of the reasons why Donald Trump is president, right? Is because 
he speaks cable news. Mm -hmm. He he is cable news personified. Yeah. And 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 there is an unhealthy addiction and feedback loop between Trump and cable news and, mm -hmm. and the media that we have. Um, they're not doing it intentionally to be bad they're doing it because they're ignorant and because they don't know any other way hmm. and, and so the way that we get better is we start taking things out of those dichotomous perspectives and once you start doing that and deconstructing what has actually happened you can start to get a better idea where we've been and where we are and when you can start doing that you can find a way to the future but unfortunately our culture as it as it's rigged right now isn't set up to do that which is why we keep making the same mistakes mm -hmm. over and over and over ah, well you're you're younger than i am so i'm hoping your generation <laughs> and even some of my generation can figure this out because i just don't know but you know what i do know i want to talk to you about something completely different now um you wrote a book called the man they wanted me to be toxic masculinity and a crisis of our own making and i find that absolutely fascinating I, I speak to uh, M, who is feminist next door often, and you know we talk about to toxic masculinity, but we're two women, and so when women talk about it, there's going to be a defensive. You know, certain men, not all, are are going to be very defensive about this, and and then they scream that there's toxic femininity back at us. And so I'm just really curious. Can you just first of all give us an outline of um, what you wrote about? Because I want to read your book. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. So toxic masculinity and, and a lot of people, um, you know, the, immediately when the, the book came out, a lot of people are like, oh, you're just trying to get rid of men and you're trying to vilify every man, whatever. Yeah, toxic masculinity is not that. Right. Toxic masculinity is about insecure men who are so insecure that they have to overcompensate the classical markers of masculinity. And that usually comes out as aggression. It comes out as antagonism. It leads to stoicism and actually it leads to really really poor relationships abuse it leads to murder it leads to rape mm -hmm. it leads to wars um it, it leads uh to all of these social ills that hurt everyone around these toxic males but what i wrote about as well is it actually hurts the men themselves yeah. because because what's actually happening at the at the heart of this whole thing is that men who trafficked in traditional masculinity are actually really insecure about their place in it because it's it's unachievable, mm -hmm. right? Nobody's invincible. Nobody is actually stoic. We all have feelings. We all have insecurities. It just so happens that men are traditionally told that they can't be insecure and that they can't have emotions. Mm -hmm. So when they feel those things, it creates this tension within them and a stress within them, and they lash out at the world, mm -hmm. right? And, and, you know, we've been talking about Donald Trump, and, and this is one of the reasons why I wrote this book is Donald Trump is the most obvious insecure man imaginable, right? Mm -hmm. and, and he's held up as like this tough guy or bully or whatever, but he's such an insecure, fragile mm -hmm. little man yeah. who, um, you know, it, it's weird. Like, he's supposed to be this manly man, but he, like, he wears makeup. He's very particular about, about, you know, germs and how he handles himself. If someone critiques him, he can't handle it mm -hmm. and he has to attack them. And, and it's this really sad facade that I think anybody who knows a, a, a somebody who's toxically masculine, they recognize it, mm -hmm. right? That that's who this guy is. And I wrote this book because, you know, I watched uh, back in October of 2016 after the Access Hollywood thing came out um, and the, the locker room 
talk Mm -hmm. tape that got released. And I was like, you know, this is it for him. And obviously it wasn't. Right. And I became very interested in, in why that was. And I, I came to realize of course that toxic masculinity powers the country, which is, you know, something I'd always been suspicious of, Mm -hmm. but I finally recognized in totality. And so what I did is, um, I, I talked about how the country and, uh, how politics have been taken hostage by a bunch of insecure men who don't really know who to be anymore. And I also, um, weaved in my own story of growing up in abusive households with toxically masculine men and how that actually, even though I was an insecure child and, and I, I tried not to be a part of that, you can't help but mm-hmm. have it socialize you and how it led to dysfunction in my life. It actually led me uh, down some really, really awful roads. Um, I nearly took my life multiple mm-hmm. times and how I finally had to like come to terms with who I was and, and become secure in myself or at least try to become secure in myself. And, and basically it, it's, it's a memoir and uh political analysis all weaved into one because I think uh, I think men need to take a long look in the mirror and understand um, our role in why we've gotten to this crisis and and that we've created it yeah and I mean when when you were talking about the fact that um, you know men have these impossible standards put on them that they causes them to feel insecure. Um, I'm going to go back to the idea that there are, you know, the, the term toxic masculinity makes people who don't understand that term feel defensive because it, because they, they think that's an attack on manhood or it's attack on men in general. And it isn't, I mean, you just explained it very well. Um, but then the other side of that is like, I often talk about insecurities and body, body image and body hatred because I experience body hatred and I, and I have ever since I was 13 years old. Uh, that was the year I went on my very first diet and I'm six feet tall and I have a very, um, broad frame. I have big, like I literally have big bones, like my feet are big, my hands are big. And, um, so I have always experienced a certain amount of insecurity because of my size. And it's not just, you know, I mean, there are tall women out there who are, and I've put a lot of thought into this, so that's why I'm being very descriptive here. But I mean, there's tall women who have narrow frames. I am a tall woman, woman with a large frame. And so, not only am I tall, I'm, I'm a big person. And people say that to me a lot. They're like, wow, you're really big. And it's not that I'm big in a, in a, in a fat way per se, except that I always feel fat, but it's um, that I'm just big and, and feeling big makes me feel insecure. And so I understand that there is this impossible, um, you know, ideal that I will never be, even though I was fortunate enough. I mean, I'm 51 years old this year. I'm going to be 52 back when I was, you know, in my early thirties, you know, mid thirties, I was at my peak and I, I was, and I still look good, but I was considered a beautiful woman, but it, it wasn't enough. It was like, I, well, I'm beautiful, but I'm big and I'm this, and I have cellulite and whatever it is that was going through my mind always caused me to feel like I just wasn't good enough. And I, and I'm, I'm guessing that with toxic masculinity, it's kind of a similar narrative that goes on in one's head. But I think that maybe the difference is that women are allowed to think those things. Women are allowed to analyze themselves and to recognize what's hurting them or making them upset. Whereas men just have to be the strong guy who never has any kind of um, self doubt or insecurity. And so I think, I think there's the difference. And, you know, I mean, there's that term that's used that 
I think is bullshit, which is f- uh, feminine, t- uh, ma- uh, f- feminine, um, toxic femininity. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see that. Th- obviously, there are women that can be assholes and that can treat people horribly, but there is a difference because that is not getting us into wars. That is not causing murder. That is not causing rape and all of that stuff. And so there's kind of a difference, but I, but I see the parallels because it's like, it's still both of these insecurities are coming from the patriarchy. And the patriarchy is simply this narrative that forms when one gender has the majority of power. And right now, and for always, it's been men. And so men are setting these tones and men are setting these narratives and we're kind of allowing it to happen. Now, I'm, I'm curious to know, as somebody who wrote about this, what kind of responses outside of the initial criticisms, what kind of responses are you getting from this? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm so glad that you used the example of, of body insecurity because that, that has always been considered a gendered thing. Yes. The idea that, that eating disorders and body dysmorphia is a feminine thing. Right. But men, men feel it as much as, as women. Yeah. I actually have suffered uh, with anorexia and bulimia uh, most of my life and body dysmorphia as well. And when you talk to men, they talk all the time about eating disorders, but they talk about it through the idea of discipline, right? They can restrict the calories they take. They work yeah. out here. There's even like a, a, a the masculine branch of eating disorder called bigamy, which is where you have to grow as large as you possibly can. And you actually get muscles to the point where it's to an unhealthy level. Mm-hmm. And and so men actually have the exact same problems that women do, but mm-hmm. they view it through a gendered lens and they don't believe it's a masculine thing. Um, go, going back to the idea, though, about where power lies, there's this idea that men have to be impervious and men have to be in control of themselves at all times. Um, The patriarchy, funny enough, from what I found in my research is the patriarchy is actually a coping mechanism among men because the thing that I kept finding that surprised me the most is that um, physically men are actually weaker than women in a lot of ways. Hmm. Um, Men actually uh, are more susceptible to disease uh, men are more likely to die earlier. Um, they, they don't have the, uh, the coping mechanisms that women do. Um, and, and, and in a lot of ways, they have had to create this persona of, of imperviousness to sort of beef themselves up. And actually, it, before socialization hits, men are actually more sensitive and emotional than women. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at infants and you look at toddlers before they're taught, you know, before they're told that they can't cry or boys don't get upset, um, they're actually louder and more emotional than girls. Hmm. Uh, so this whole thing, in a lot of ways, has been a coping mechanism and an overcompensation, which is why we have toxic masculinity. It is a power base that is built on overcompensation that abuses and victimizes and subjugates other people. Mm-hmm. Surely there are women who do awful things mm-hmm. and they they go out and 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 hurt other people that that's certainly the case and sure there might even be some abuses that happen because of the idea of gendered femininity right, right? the way that they treat themselves and you brought up the era earlier and it's actually funny or not funny it's tragic <laughs> but the entire way that the era was stalled in the first place is a conservative mm-hmm. uh, woman named phyllis schlafly, schlafly yeah <laughs> actually was able to use um, what you could term toxic white femininity yes. in order to undermine yes. the passage of the ERA. 
So what ends up happening is, and 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 that's one of those things I think a lot of people, a lot of t- people have trouble with is they look at things like feminism and they look at things like social justice through the idea of power redistribution uh, and and sort of gaining advantage. Again, it goes back to game theory, right? It's a war where you either win or you lose. Mm-hmm. But in truth, feminism is actually about equality for everyone. Yes. Um, m- men have everything to gain from accepting feminism. Um, They will live longer and happier lives. And on top of that, the the most amazing thing about the whole thing is, and this is one of the reasons why toxic masculinity is really coming to a head right now, is because the idea of gender, the idea of masculinity that so many people have grown up with was actually an economic response. Um, It was for men who would go into factories and mines and do menial labor and put their bodies in jeopardy. And they were in these terrible jobs where their bodies were used up and they were told that they weren't to complain. Their their way of showing themselves was to give over their body as opposed to their emotions. So emotions didn't matter in that economy. Well, factories and mines and all of these labor jobs are gone away now. Mm -hmm. And so there's no economic incentive for men to behave like that any longer. But those traits still remain. And so men actually in the economy that we have now, um, whether it's service or tech or all of these progressive um, industries, actually men need to communicate. They need to um, they need to be able to emote. They need to be teammates. They need to come together in ways that used to be gendered as feminine. Mm-hmm. So there is actually an economic, social, and personal incentive to embracing this idea of feminism. And it's not like anybody's trying to get rid of masculinity. I mean, right. as I'm talking to you right now, um, you know, I, I wrote a book about toxic masculinity. I, I understand gender. I understand feminism. I consider myself a feminist. And I'm sitting here talking to you in jeans, boots, and a flannel, right? And a beard. <laughs> like, it's, but the difference is I look in the mirror every day and I, I, I take an inventory of why I present myself to the world the way that I do. Mm-hmm. I present as, you know, classically masculine because to me, when I go out in the world looking like this, it's an armor. Mm-hmm. Right. When I'm putting on the flannel, I understand it's not just for warmth. It's for comfort. Mm-hmm. It's for uh, confidence. It's it's, you know, because we're all secretly terrified every moment of every single day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, whatever can make me feel a little yeah. bit more confident without hurting other people, that's something. But as long as I don't get lost in the persona and lost in the disguise. Right. It's when it's when you start believing that you're putting those things on because that's how a man is supposed to be. Right. And everybody else can just, you know, go to hell. That's when people start suffering that's when you have wars that's when you have abuse that's when you have rape and murder and pillaging and patriarchy and as long as you're not getting lost in those things you should be okay but again men have everything to gain by throwing this stuff away or at least refashioning it um and 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 unfortunately a lot of people are now doubling down because of things like donald trump and fascism and white supremacy and, and all those things have come into play yeah which toxic masculinity patriarchy and white supremacy are all like you know peas and carrots and they're uh they just fit together so perfectly and i'm I'm really glad though that you're being so open and honest because uh it's something that i've always shared and and talked about openly the fact that i've had i mean i i certainly dabbled in eating disorders i never had anorexia per se um but i i have um and i can't it's hard for me to say that i've had bulimia i have made myself get sick um, but I was not the person who binged and purged. I, and, and, and so I know that I had some form of bulimia and it was over the course of about a year and a half. I'm glad that I was able to, 
able to overcome it. But for me, what it was about strictly was about looking thin or or my goal was to be thin and and from what i've read about bulimia and anorexia there is definitely also aside from you know like the way you look your image is the um like there's a control thing. People feel like they're out of control so that they control the amount of food they eat or they can control the amount of food that they ingest. And so that was never my thing. I never cared about the control. All I wanted was to be as thin as I could be. That was all it was based on. And I wasn't somebody who engaged in it um, like an ongoing everyday basis. It was only when I was unable, like I, I'm pretty much a loner. So for me, it was easy to... Um, you know, I wasn't, like I said, anorexic, but I didn't necessarily, and I'm talking about back when I was probably in my 20s and 30s, where I would not really eat enough food. I would eat, but I wouldn't eat enough. And I, and I was always trying to maintain the skinniest possible version of myself. And this, you know, so I wasn't, I, I was restricting food, but I was eating food. And then as far as, uh, you know, making myself sick, I didn't binge. I, I didn't, I only, I, I only made myself sick when I didn't feel that I was in control because like, let's say I went out to dinner with friends. I was unable to control myself as far as what I would eat because now I didn't have control over what I cooked. Somebody else cooked it and I wanted to put it in my mouth because I restricted so much. And so I, w- I was unable to say, all right, well, I'm just going to have a small portion. I mean, I would, I would eat everything and then I would feel guilty and then I would get rid of it. And thankfully I've, I've stopped doing that, but it's something that I always carry with me because it was that feeling of, well, I'm too big and I don't want to be big. And the fact that you're being so open about it and you're a man is so refreshing to hear because oftentimes, like you had said, I mean, we, we put this on women and, you know, I remember back in the nineties when, um, Callista Flockhart was, I can't remember, uh, what, what do you remember that show that she was on? Uh, it, it was, was McBeal. Thank you. Yeah. Allie McBeal. She, you know, there was a lot of news about her thinness and, and, and actresses on that show that were competing. And I remember at that point, I wanted to write a book so badly about, um, all of it, all, you know, just hating your body, wanting to look a certain way, all the pressure that we feel to look a certain way. And it was pissing me off. And, and, and I felt like anytime I brought it up since then, it's a subject that people usually, at least maybe in the last 10 years it's changed, but people thought it was always about like supermodels or actresses only who had this problem. But I mean, it's so many people and there are so many men, as you say, uh, including yourself, who have experienced this. And it's all stemming from the fact that we're told that we're not good enough how we are. Our bodies aren't good enough unless we look like a Ken doll or a Barbie doll. And, you know, it's, it's so frustrating and it's so wonderful to hear you speak so openly about it, even though it makes me feel sad because I, you know, even though I've experienced it myself, when I hear you talk about it, it makes me feel sad that you felt that way because I don't, you shouldn't feel that way about yourself. I shouldn't feel that way about myself, yet we do. And I do think that it does come from a patriarchal message. It, it comes a little bit from toxic masculinity. <laughs> because men feel they have to look a certain way and it feel, you know, it's like, I feel like I have to certain look a certain way because that's what patriarchy has told me. And I was in the acting business. I was an actor for just about a decade and it was, you know, not only did I experience, um, 
those feelings of insecurity like I think many actresses do. I was also taller and bigger than most people, including men. So I had that like extra pressure of feeling like, well, I'm not good enough because I'm bigger than most, uh, taller and bigger than most of the men that I see, whether in my acting class or in auditions or on, on the set. So it's, it's always been something that has been a part of my life. And again, I'm glad that you can talk about it so freely and that the whole idea of toxic masculinity coming from a man really has a lot of merit for men who might be doubtful of it or critical of it because they feel um, like they're being attacked or something in some way. And what, you're, what you say is not attacking. It's like you're, you're basically saying, hey, you have permission to be who you are without judgment. Am I right? Well, to bring, well, to bring, bring a full circle, I, I, I think the, the major problem um, with humanity, and this is in, um, you know, whether we're talking about gender or we're talking about politics or, or the risk of war, is we, we so often get lost in the idea that we think we know why we're doing what we're doing. Right. We, we lose sight of the fact that there are things outside of us that affect us and lead us to do the things and mm-hmm. that we are often perpetually confused about who we are and why we're doing the things that we're doing. Um, when I was suffering uh, my eating disorder and, and you know, in, in recent history, when I had my most recent relapse with it. Um, it, it felt like a matter, like you said, of control, mm-hmm. right? I, it, viewed through the idea of masculine gender, I looked at it as discipline. Um, mm. Other things in my life were spiraling out of control. I was having my own personal crises. Um, I didn't know what to do. I was afraid and so exercised discipline, mm-hmm. right? The one thing that I could control was how many calories I would take into my body and how much, you know, working out I would do. And, and every time that you step on a scale or you look at yourself in the mirror, you're like, Oh, that is physical proof that I am okay. And that I'm not falling apart. Right. Well, the same thing's happening in, in politics. We have uh, a crisis right now with a, a president who is not just unhinged, but he's dangerous. Yeah. And so many people, if, if you want to get down to the heart of why we're in this situation and why Trump has a base that is not going to go away, there are parts of them that, that will go away and are going away, but there's like a core group. There's a core group of people who are in personal crises. Um, they don't know what's going on in their lives. Maybe their mental uh, well-being isn't there. They don't know what their careers are. Their future looks bleak. They live in a country that that doesn't really either treat them well economically or politically. And in, in the case of his white supporters, they feel like their grip on power mm-hmm. is slipping and that's terrifying to them. Donald Trump is the person who gets in front of them and says, you don't need to worry about all that stuff. You are totally fine. Yeah. And it is it is a political enabling. And so you have a group of people who aren't aware of why they're doing what they're doing. And and it gets lost in the idea of, you know, keep America great again and America first and, and we're winning and they're losing. And when someone tells you all the time that they're winning when you're losing all the time, like it gets mixed up and it, it becomes a blur. Mm-hmm. And, and so all these sort of like crises of, of personal identity are coming together. And the real danger of it is even as somebody who uh, has researched toxic masculinity and has researched this sort of self-harm, 
it still is a daily battle to overcome it. For mm -hmm. people who don't even know it exists or are in denial about it, you know, it's so much easier to fall under the sway of, of demagogues and, and people who tell you it's fine. I mean, if you look at fascism throughout history, it's demagogues who take a group of insecure people who mm -hmm. feel like they're losing their power and they tell them, don't worry, we're going to keep that power. And then they're like, fine, get rid of democracy and all of our institutions. Mm -hmm. I mean, fascism it, it, at its heart and, and look at the way it's about swaggering and, and putting your chest out and wearing the military uniforms and it's about military might. Fascism is a result of toxic masculinity. Historically, yeah. that's what this is. There are movements that are based on the idea that people feel weak and somebody tells them they are strong. And, and so like the big mystery of humanity and the thing that keeps happening is we keep getting lost in our own fictions. We keep getting lost about why we do the things we do. And unfortunately, there are severe consequences from getting lost and not being able to find your way out. I think America is at a crossroads where we are severely lost. And even people who know that something is wrong aren't even particularly aware of why it's wrong yeah. or what is wrong. And and the moment that we start unknowing truths from fictions and, and disinformation from information, that's when the healing starts taking place, both from a personal level and a political and a national level. And it, it, it's a lot of work, even if it's just yourself or, again, it's a lot of work for a nation to do it. Um, but, but unfortunately that that's the only choice we have. We have yeah. to work on that in both ways. Wow. Well, so fascinating. Um, I love listening to you and I could listen to you all day. I'm definitely going to read your book. Oh, um, thank you. <laughs> it's so, it's so interesting to me and especially coming from a man, um, you have such an interesting take on things and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, especially last minute. Um, that was awesome. So before we get going and I hope that one day, uh, you'll come back, but before we get going, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Sure. And I will come back literally anytime you'll have, um, <laughs> Yay! uh, on Twitter where I'm unfortunately chronicling uh, a nation <laughs> on fire. Um, I am at JY Sexton. Uh, my website is jysexton.com and I have a newly launched podcast called the muckrake podcast, uh, which people can find wherever they get their podcast. I, I would love for anyone to give it a listen. Um, a lot of conversations about this. Um, I'll have to have you on here one of these days. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, thank you. Definitely. I'll put all of your information in the Patreon show description. Thank you for a great conversation, Jared. Hey, thanks for having me. Take care. I really like him. He's so awesome. Isn't he awesome? I love the fact that he can speak about his self-image and his eating disorders so openly. I mean, I wish I, I felt a little bit maternal. Um, as I kind of said to him, it made me feel bad to listen to him talk about it because I, I want to take that away from him. Um, I've experienced it myself, and I think that's why I feel like I want to hug him and, and, and help him along. Obviously, he doesn't need my help. He's very smart, and he understands what he's doing, and he's on his own journey. But I so appreciate his candor and the fact that he is a thoughtful man who recognizes not only that, you know, he is dealing with this patriarch patriarchy bullshit and the toxic masculinity that he's willing to talk about it and he's willing to research it and help other people. 
Um, because even, I mean, nobody on this particular podcast who's, you know, who listens to the podcast has ever said anything negative to me about talking, uh, when, when we talk about toxic masculinity, but if you put it out there on the internet, surely there's going to be somebody who comes on and argues and, and screams and, and feels like we're attacking them and we're not. I mean, basically the idea is we have to get rid of this, um, bullshit narrative that men have to behave a certain way and they have to dress a certain way and they have to speak a certain way. Um, it's, you know, the, the other night I was watching one of my guilty pleasures, which is Vanderpump Rules. And I was noticing that uh, one of the, I don't know, 30 something year olds on that show was wearing a nightgown. And, you know, I can, and I, what I was thinking it was just a long shirt. And I guess you could say traditionally, that's what you're used to seeing women wear. And so I could easily see that if, if a Trump supporter or if a, even it doesn't, it could still be a liberal who buys into this patriarchal narrative that men have to dress a certain way, um, would make fun of a man for wearing an oversized t-shirt. But in the end, who gives a shit? You know, like what the fuck does it matter to you if some guy wants to wear an oversized t-shirt to bed? Um, but we live in this culture that wants to now, now granted on Vanderpump rules, they live in Los Angeles and they're like actor slash models and they don't give a shit about these norms. And that's great. I don't think they should. And yes, I know it's a dumb show, but I don't care. Don't give me any shit. I like it. Um, although last night's show was the first show of the new season and it wasn't that great. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I've always liked that show just because to me, it's like a break from all the crazy. It's just, it's just, you know, that and all the real house, not all the real housewives. So I have a couple shows that I like, but it's, you know, yes, they are eat, like eating Cheetos, empty calories, but it, it is something that I can just not think about what Donald Trump is doing and not think about what Mitch McConnell is doing. But going back to Jared, um, what a fascinating guy. I'm so glad I had the opportunity to talk to him and this was the first time we ever spoke so I imagine down the line when he comes back and he will um, we're going to be building up a, an interesting kind of um, chemistry he seems like such a sweet and loving person and I say that in a very general way like he cares about this country he cares about the world and we need more people like him um, alright so that's going to be it I, I, uh, I mentioned in the intro that hopefully next week I'll be talking to Steve Schmidt so We'll see what happens there. Hopefully his schedule permits. And that's it. That's the first show of the new year. We'll see you next time.